If everyone would open their Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 992. And we're going to read this entire chapter together. These uh, 16 verses. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourselves to them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that speaks truth in its time 2,000 years ago and in our time today and in all times. Thank you for the gift of your word that guides us, that tells us which way to go and not to go, that tells us the things that are true to believe about you, to know about life, to know about ourselves, particularly about how we can know you. We thank you for your word. Father, we thank you also for this uh, study that we've been able to do of the Protestant Reformation of 500 years ago that we celebrated uh, the 500th anniversary just a few days ago. We thank you for your work by your spirit at that time to dust off and show once again the glory of the gospel, the glory of salvation in Christ that had been had been hidden, had been uh, lost in ways, had been covered over and changed and so we thank you for your work in history, your work during the Reformation to uncover that for us once again, to show us the apostolic teaching that was believed by the, the church fathers and, and uh, that is the true way of salvation in Christ. Father, we thank you for that. And though it's been a, maybe an unusual topic for us, it's crucial because it's about the gospel. And we thank you for that salvation. And I pray as we come to your word this morning and as we come to look at our modern day and assess um, the status 
of the Reformation 500 years later, particularly in our culture. Help us to see and have insight. Help us to learn the lessons that we should learn. I pray that you, by your word, would guard us and protect us. Lead us forward. May the truth be clung to. May you work in our lives such that we hold on to your word and understand what it means and cling to the truth and the true teaching of your word. So, Father, we ask for your blessing on our time. And as we, as we discuss, as we move forward, we trust you with our safety. We trust you to minister to us. We pray that you would help us to think deeply about the topics we're, we're discussing. Help us to be sensitive to your spirit. Help us to be responsive to your spirit. So we pray that you would work now, even during this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll get to 1 Timothy chapter 4 in uh, just a moment. I want to start off talking, however, about something a little bit different. Um, For those of you who have children or who have worked with children or seen children, (laughs) you you know that uh, very often... They, when they start off and they're one year, one or two or something like that, they stand and they sit perfectly straight. It's just amazing to me how they can sit in the middle of the floor and their back is just ramrod straight, just trying to be as tall as possible. And then somewhere around 10, this happens and, and the slouching begins, right? I don't know why that is. I'm sure there's some reason. I don't know what it is, but uh, the slouching begins. And so you're telling your kids constantly, stand up tall, don't slouch. You know, have good posture, stand up, stand up. And, and, and they might do that because you're in, the, in, in their presence, but after a while it goes right back to where it was, right? Because that's the habit. And so they, they, they sink back into that same slouch and, and it continues. And it's, it's hard to maintain that kind of posture, right? And for a few years I, I coached uh, CrossFit also. And, and you see people that have problems, particularly in their shoulders, that are the result of slouching. Right? They can't reach up overhead or they can't do certain things with their hands because they've lived their lives with a slouch. And so God has designed us to be upright with, you know, for a reason. Our shoulders work properly and everything works properly when we're nice and tall and upright. And then when we start to slouch, then all of a sudden, for some reason, I've got this pain right here when I do push-ups and all manner of problems because we slouch. We slouch, right? And so, you know, kids, listen to your parents when they say don't slouch, right? <laughs> Stand up tall. It will help you later in life. Trust me. But this, you know, the slouch always returns. And, and even, even in my own, you know, thinking about, okay, I need to have good posture and, and uh, whatever, you know, I stand up nice and tall. And then, and then after a while, I find myself right back into the same position because we, we sink right back down into it. And so that, that idea of slouching is, uh, it, it, it helps me think about the Reformation because theologically, that's what had happened uh, during, the, during the Middle Ages uh, or the, the, the medieval period that we were talking about. Theologically, there had been a great slouch. There had been a lot of things had been kind of lost. And, and just like it messes up the way your shoulders work and, and, and it, it gives you neck pain and all kinds of stuff, it was, it was affecting the church horribly by the, uh, the theological slouch they had entered for, for, uh, for hundreds of years. And so during the time of the Reformation, it's like they dusted that off and they, they, they understood posture and they, they got that back. And, um, and so we've been talking about that, 
Reformation. We've been talking about that history and more the theological history than the, than the, we weren't talking about nations and we weren't talking about the political things that were going on. And it's a fascinating subject. We could have talked about that. We were talking about more the theology of what was going on. What, what was the background theology that they were dealing with and what was the, 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 the theological discussion that they had and what, what were the results and, and things like that. And so, um, we, we've spent this time talking about it because we, we think it's valuable enough to have spent a couple of months dealing with these issues because it has to do with the gospel, because it has to do with thinking in deep ways, biblical ways about the gospel and the truths of scripture, particularly as they pertain to salvation. And so it's worth our time. We have, we, we decided it was worth our time. And, and I, I believe that has shown itself to think about thoughts that people were having 500 years ago. And so here we are, and we thought it was worthy of that. But uh, I read of one pastor who, who um, was a, a very famous pastor. You would know his name if I mentioned it. And, and he was from Southern California, no, no longer alive. But he, he said that the, uh, the Reformation was actually an error. It was problematic because it was focused on God and not focused on man, said this pastor. So the, the Reformation was in error because it was God-centered rather than man-centered. That should scare you a little bit. And this is a very well-known pastor. And uh, it, it scares me a little bit. And, and what that is evidence of is a little bit of the slouch entering back in. Right? It was dusted off. It was straightened up. The posture was good, you know, 500 years ago. And, and now you see the slouch of the, of the same, some of the same beliefs of medieval Roman Catholicism creeping back into the church today and evangelicalism today. And so um, we want to talk about those. And that's what today is, is talking about. And then we're going to finish with the corrective from 1 Timothy chapter 4. Another, another one of the, the evidences of the same slouch from that medieval period that we see now is there's a tendency for, for people to hold the Bible at a distance. Just like there was during the time of the Reformation. They hold the Bible at a distance. And that's, that's for one of two reasons. One reason is that it's too complicated and I can't really understand it, so I'll just let them explain it to me. Right? So I don't really interact with it myself. So we, we keep a distance that way. But there's another way. There's another way we distance ourselves, and this, this appears uh, in our culture also, and that's that, that many people would rather have this one-on-one interaction with the Holy Spirit than to be guided by Scripture. And so this is a little dry and dull, and it's much more exciting, much more moving to me personally when I have this one-on-one interaction, apart from the Bible, with the Holy Spirit. And so, once again, the Bible is kept at bay because I like this, I like this relationship, I like those experiences. And those, those same things were going on in the, in, during the times of the Reformation. Actually, Calvin mentioned uh, what he, he refers to here as fanatics. He's talking about the radical Reformation. But those people who see uh, this, this one-on-one relationship with the Holy Spirit as desirable over uh, knowing the Word, being guided by the Word. And this is what he said. He said, when the fanatics boast extravagantly of the Spirit... The tendency is always to bury the word of God so they make room for their own falsehoods. They bury the word of God so they can make room for their own falsehoods. And so we, we have a problem when we distance ourselves from God's word, either because we think it's too complex and that's just for the experts and let's let them tell us what it means or because, well, I don't really want to, this is kind of dull and dry and I'd rather have this exciting uh, relationship with the Holy Spirit. And, and so we see some of that slouch, right? You see some other evidences of that. I'm going to give you some percentages here that are, that are not necessarily encouraging, maybe not encouraging at all. But according to sociologist James Hunter, 35% of evangelical seminarians believe, so 
evangelical students in seminary, 35% of them believe that Jesus is not the only way to God. Evangelical seminary students and 35% of them believe that Jesus is not the only way to God. So, but lest we be too hard on the seminarians, the seminary students or the seminaries themselves, that number is the same as the general populace of conservative evangelical Protestants in the U.S. who believe this statement, God will save all people, all good people when they die, regardless of whether they've trusted Christ. God will save all good people when they die, regardless of whether they've trusted Christ. 35% of conservative Protestant evangelicals in the general populace in the United States believe that. You see the slouch? You see it beginning? And it's not even just beginning. One-fourth of self-proclaimed born-again evangelicals agreed with this statement. If a person is good or does enough good things for others during life, they will earn a place in heaven. One-fourth. Openness theologian and author Clark Pennock, maybe you've heard the name, maybe not, but uh, he, he believes in open theology, that is God learns, God doesn't know what's going to happen, he has a really good guess, but when you actually make the decision, then God learns what you did, and so God's kind of learning as he goes, and, and, uh, and he's not really sovereign over events and things like that, it's open theology. Well, openness theologian and author Clark Pennock stated, the Bible does not teach that one must confess the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. The issue God cares about is the direction of the heart, not the content of their theology. This is a well-known man. Where does this biblical doctrine or this, uh, this, this confusion regarding biblical doctrine come from? Where have we gotten off the trail that was blazed by the reformers? They, they were so clear. I mean, they were so clear on these topics. That's why we have, that's why we have these solas up here on the wall. A major contributor to this theological slouch is a heretical doctrine called Pelagianism. And so our first topic there is, is uh, on Pelagianism. And it, it, it has to deal with the question, how free is man? How free is man? And so we're going to deal with that doctrine, Pelagianism. I was going to leave it a blank and then see how well you did at trying to spell Pelagianism. Because <laughs> if, if I didn't know how it was spelled, I, you know. It's named after a guy named Pelagius. And uh, Pelagius was an early, late 4th century, early 5th century British monk. And this is what he taught. This is a summary of what he taught. He taught a lot. This is a summary. He said, man's native powers are such that men are capable of doing everything that God requires of them for salvation. So once again, men's native powers, the thing just within themselves, the native powers are such that men are capable of doing everything that God requires of them for salvation. That was the teaching of Pelagius, this, uh, this monk from, from Britain. He denied original sin. He believed that Adam's sin hurt no one besides Adam himself. So it didn't, didn't hurt us. It hurt only him. He taught that for us, Adam's sin was really just a bad example. It doesn't have any real consequence to us. It's just a bad example for us. So Adam is our bad example. And likewise, Christ is our good example. And we should follow Christ. So we have a bad example, we have a good example. For Pelagius, in the end, what people really need is direction, not new birth. Because Christ is our example. He's not our atonement. He's not our sacrifice on our behalf. Pelagianism was condemned, by the way, as, as heretical three different times in the early 5th century. Three different councils, the, the church got together and said, this is unbiblical. 
This is heretical teaching. And, and they condemned Pelagius those three times in his teaching. Actually, more, uh, he, was, he was condemned in more councils than any other individual. This issue of Pelagianism was hammered out very strongly by, by the early church in the 5th century. Well, so that's Pelagianism. And it was declared to be heretical. But, but there's a Pelagianism light, or what they call semi-Pelagianism. And it's a, it's a related doctrine, right? And uh, it's something of a compromise kind of between orthodoxy and this Pelagianism that we just talked about. And the central points of dispute... Uh, between uh, about semi-Pelagianism are just two. I narrowed it down to two. There are a lot more, but just two main points about semi-Pelagianism. Two questions. First of all, what was the effect of original sin? Semi-Pelagianism is, is concerned with this topic and, and kind of at odds with orthodoxy on what is the effect of original sin? Was it simply a weakening of our power to do good? Or was it actual spiritual death that incapacitated the soul for any spiritual good? So was it a weakening or was it an incapacitation? Was it a, was a killing of the soul? For the semi-Pelagian, original sin weakens but does not destroy the soul's ability to do good. So that's the first question. What, the, what was the effect of original sin? The second question regarding semi-Pelagianism is who begins the work of conversion? Is it man who begins by turning himself to God? Or is it the Spirit of God who initiates by divine grace before man can do anything spiritually good? For the semi-Pelagian, man can make the first move toward God by seeking him out of his own free will. So man turned towards God, seeks him out by his own free will, and God responds to man's initiating movement. So those were the two questions that semi-Pelagianism dealt with. So you can see how the related issues, how free is man, how good is man, what are his capacities, what, what does he have naturally within him to be able to respond to God? And so what did the church think of semi-Pelagianism? They condemned Pelagianism more strongly than they've ever condemned anything, or at least in, in more councils than ever before. And semi-Pelagianism itself actually was condemned as heresy also in, in 529 at the Council of Orange. So these doctrines, the, well, the semi-Pelagianism, which ought to sound familiar, you've heard this, you've, you, you've heard this in, in culture and, and things like that, and, and the, the quotes I just read, the the statistics and whatnot reflect this same trend, but it was condemned as heresy in 529 in the Council of Orange. So that's Pelagianism. You probably never heard, maybe never heard the word, but that's what it is. And that's what semi-Pelagianism is. Pelagianism doesn't, doesn't rear its head all that much, but semi-Pelagianism really does. And so we're going to look at some modern expressions next of, uh, of semi-Pelagianism re- rearing its head. They're, they're, uh, they, they really haven't gone away. And it's interesting, if you look at the date... When even semi-Pelagianism was condemned, 529, that's 1,500 years ago, this was condemned as heresy. 1,500 years ago, the church recognized this is directly contrary to biblical teaching. And yet we looked around our day and and we see evidence of it. According to recent polls, over three quarters or 77% of evangelicals believe that human beings are basically good. 77% believe that evangelicals are basically good. 84% of conservative Protestants polled believe that in salvation, God helps those who help themselves. 84%. And these weren't just regular people on the street who never go to church. These are, these are people who identify as, uh, as um, evangelicals or conservative Protestants. Those statements are diametrically opposed to the Reformation teachings that we've been examining for the last several months. They should sound 
discordant because they are. They're not discordant with the populace. They're not discordant with what you would hear in today's culture, but they're discordant with what we've been looking at, with the doctrines that we've been talking about. And it's much worse. It's bad enough that they're discordant with what we've been talking about as far as church history, but, but they're discordant with Scripture. And that's really what matters. They, they, they don't line up with what we hear and read in Scripture. But not all expressions of Pelagianism are so obvious, though. Those, those expressions of Pelagianism are, are pretty clear, but not all of them are, are uh, that obvious, right? Um, here's another one that even if you think about, you probably got, by the way, I, I think we're all born Pelagians. I think we're all born with this idea. And so I, I want to root it out a little bit, and this is not me being hard on you. But when you think about an infant and think of an infant as being pure until the time they reach the age of accountability, if that's, if that's your belief or you've had that teaching before, that's Pelagianism. That's teaching that man is basically good. So the idea that, that an infant is pure until he reaches the age of accountability or, or somehow that sin is something outside of us. It happens to us. Or maybe, maybe it's the result of bad influence, you know, the whole bad apple thing. That's, that's really what sin is. It's other people. It's other things. It's other circumstances pushing this in on me. And that's really what sin is. It's not something that wells up from within my evil heart. That's Pelagianism. That's Pelagianism. And we all have that within us. When we read the Bible, we learn something different. But that's, that's the base assumption, I think, that everybody starts with. There was a uh, 19th century revivalist. You probably heard of Charles Finney, a uh, very famous uh, revivalist, 19th century American. And uh, he, he's had a, a, a profound impact on evangelicalism, even though he was back then. But he's, he's influenced uh, the vineyard movement. He's influenced the church, church growth movement. Televangelism is influenced heavily by him. Uh, many modern evangelistic crusades and many other areas have been heavily influenced by Charles Finney. Uh, Jerry Falwell calls him one of his heroes. He's one of my heroes. And Jerry Falwell says there are many other evangelicals and, uh, that, that for, for whom he's a hero also. But what did Finney believe? Well, he denied original sin. He denied substitutionary atonement. He denied justification and the need for regeneration by the Holy Spirit. It's the basis of his teaching. So you wonder what was the evangel, what was the gospel he was preaching in these evangelistic crusades. In short, he was a Pelagian and his influence is felt throughout evangelicalism. The nature and freedom of man is not the only area where we can perceive a significant theological slouch from the Reformation times. Even the topic of just justification itself has come under assault. So secondly, we want to look at the, the justification. How can man be right before God? We've talked about that. and we've, we've seen that the Reformation was focused on answering that question biblically. And they, they demanded to, to, to wrench an answer from Scripture. They wanted to know what Scripture taught about this. They weren't willing just to stick with what the church had taught or, or, or what the world taught or what they felt from within or whatever. And they, they were concerned with what the Bible taught about how can a man be right before God. And so we've spent the majority of the last three months talking about those topics. Right? And so I, I want to read... Uh, to you from the London Baptist Confession, which is from 1689, and uh, it gives a, a, a good summary, a good Reformation perspective on the doctrine of justification. Now, this is written in 1689, so I'll try to read it slowly because get, I get kind of in the weeds here a little bit, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll read it slowly. Maybe we can all keep up. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous 
not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and his passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness by faith. Which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. And so you can see that's, that's a summary, really, of what we've been talking about uh, this whole time, that, that justification is where God declares us to be just because of what Christ has accomplished for us. Because of his death on the cross, we have forgiveness of sin. Because of his active obedience to God throughout his life, his, his fulfilling of the law, we have righteousness with God. And that is credited to us. And how does that get to us? It's by an act of God's grace when he works into our life. It's a gift of him. And how do we receive it? We receive it by faith. And where does that faith come from? From ourselves? No, that faith is a gift of God. It is an act of God, justification, where, where God declares us to be righteous before him entirely and wholly because of what Christ has done. That's what justification is, and that's what they argued about, and that's what they were willing to be excommunicated and, and hunted and, and everything else was for that doctrine. So that's the Reformation teaching. That's what we've been talking about for the last three months on that topic. So what about today? Let's do a real quick survey of justification today. As we look around our culture, as we look at evangelical culture, what do we see? Increasingly, it seems that in, in our day, justification or um, really Christ is understood more and more not as our substitutionary atoning sacrifice, but as our example that we should follow. Be like Christ is the gospel that we hear, right? And Pelagius said much the same thing 1,500 years ago, didn't he? Christ didn't really accomplish anything for us. He's an example for us to follow. It's not so much that he's a substitutionary atoning sacrifice on our behalf, but he's our example. And Charles Finney was a very clear uh, example. Uh, and this, this is what he said about justification. He said, so listen to this, Charles Finney, famous evangelist from the 19th century American, went around preaching. This is what he said. The doctrine of imputed righteousness is another gospel. For sinners to be forensically pronounced just is impossible and absurd. He was very clear on what he believed about justification. He thought it was as unbiblical as possible. The doctrine of imputed righteousness is another gospel. For sinners to be forensically pronounced just, which is our only hope. For, for sinners to be forensically pronounced just is impossible and absurd. That was his teaching. But closer to, to our time, Clark Pinnock, uh, his own weakening in, in his views of justification opened him up to the possibility that really actually purgatory may be a good idea. It may actually be a true thing. Because, you know, when you look at Christians, you know, what Christian do you know who's actually purged their life of sin by the time they die anyway? And so there's got to be some way for them to address the sin that remains in their life after death. And that's the idea of purgatory. That's a denial of justification. That is an utter denial of our sin being placed upon Christ and us receiving forgiveness and receiving Christ's righteousness by an act of God. Because you have to do something to weed the sin out of your life. 
And if you haven't done so by the time you've died, and what Christian do we know that ever has? If you've not done so by the time you die, well, Clark Pinnock was open to the idea that there may be a purgatory. There there may be an opportunity after death for you to, to be purged of that sin. Hear the contrast from Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. To the one who does not work, but believes him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Nothing about purgatory in there. But even closer to our day, so if, if we, we remember that, that Luther was in 1517, October 31st, 1517, he was kind of the one who kicked this all off and he was one of the main figureheads and one of the main speakers and writers and, and teachers and, and uh, lightning rods for the Reformation, right? So, and, and of course, Luther has given birth to the Lutheran church and, and of course, there are many versions of Lutheran churches. There are some that are, that, are, that are solid and there are some that are not even recognizable as a church and there's, there's everything in between. But listen to this. In the 1998 Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification between the Lutheran World Federation and the Roman Catholic Church. So these are the same two, essentially, people who were in dialogue 500 years ago. Luther and the Roman Catholic Church, right? But nowadays, of course, 500 years, so, you know, Luther's long gone and, and, uh, and, and so he can't represent. But the Lutheran World Federation came together with the Roman Catholic Church for what they called the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification. So since that doctrine of justification was a central point of, of contention between Luther and, and the church, interesting to see what, what would happen 500 years later between those same conversants, right? What's, uh, what's going on? What, what, what has happened now? Well, the two were finally able to come to some kind of agreement on the doctrine of justification. Well, that's interesting. 500 years of discussion finally come to some, some kind of agreement. And surprisingly, Rome found that they, they really no longer agreed or excuse me, they, they no longer disagreed with, uh, with the Lutheran World uh, Federation. And this wasn't because of some compromise between the two. There wasn't a give and take on the part of two, but rather because the Lutherans who were represented in that group no longer believed what Rome had anathematized 500 years ago. So Rome had held its position. Luther had gone over here with his doctrine of justification. And after a time of 500 years... Those represented in this Lutheran council, which is not all Lutherans, were right back here and saying, well, I guess we do agree after all. They had come right back home to where they had started. Rome continued to hold that eternal life is at one and the same time grace and the reward given by God for good works and merits. I'll read that again. Rome continued to believe that eternal life is At one and the same time, grace, oh, that sounds good. Okay, it's a good start. Grace and the reward given by God for good works and merit. That's what eternal life is. The gains made by the reformers 500 years ago had completely evaporated in this group. Less than than 500 years later. So that's that's just the status of justification today. That's what's going on in the evangelical world. This is, this is not a, uh, an, an exact cross-section of evangelicalism, of course. These are just some things that are going on. But, but uh, I think back to when we started teaching very specifically on the doctrine of justification. I've studied this a lot. I learned some things. 
And, and I think probably it was eye-opening for many of us to, to look at this idea of justification from Scripture itself and, and clarify our thinking. And, and we're a Bible church. We preach the Bible week in and week out. Imagine for, for churches that are more distanced from this, what's their grip on justification? I don't have any confidence that it's any greater than our grip was, and I think it's probably uh, much, much worse, as evidenced by even the uh, joint declaration on the doctrine of justification. So what's the remedy? What's the remedy? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 4 is where we're going to go for our remedy. 1 Timothy is a book that's written by Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, who was pastoring this church. He was setting up this church, making some corrections. He was working in this church, and uh, he had been commissioned to solve various problems there. And as, as often happens, the problems that were there in the church had to do with false teaching, and Timothy was to address these issues of false teaching. And we read the whole chapter, but I want to zoom in on and kind of look at the summary that we have there in verse 16. So look at First uh, Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. He says, first of all, watch your life. Watch your life, Timothy. Watch your life, pastor. When you look at the qualifications of an elder or an overseer in the pastoral epistles, we see there's one skill qualification, only one skill requirement. The rest are character qualities. One skill, the rest are character qualities. And there's a reason for that. Elders have been given stewardship of the local church. They, they will be examples to the church. They will be examples for the church to follow. And I say will be, not should be, because they are examples. Whether they're bad examples leading people astray, or whether they're good examples following Christ leading people to follow Him, right? So we really are examples. And so you ask the question, what kind of example do you want for the local church? Well, it better be exemplary character. And so Paul writes in Timothy and Titus and writes and says, here are the qualifications. There's one skill and the rest are character qualities, right? Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And I, I've seen very often in, uh, in my Christian life that, that uh, I've seen a lot of sloppy theology. And I've seen that a lot of times sloppy theology follows a sloppy life. And a lot of times a sloppy life follows sloppy theology, meaning the two influence one another. You do the things you do because of what you believe, right? But then maybe there's, maybe there's this thing that you like to do and other people kind of don't like to do it or whatever. And so you might, you might begin to defend that, right? You become defensive of that position. You begin to justify yourself in this area, right? And then once you've justified yourself in this area and you've, you've made other people believe that this thing is fine, well, now you can step right into it whole hog. Right, And that's how you end up with pastors who uh, go off the deep end regarding affairs or regarding um, homosexual lifestyle or regarding all kinds of other issues, money, uh, all, any of these things. You see that, that they have made room for it in their theology so that they can go into it whole hog in their lifestyle. And it ends up running them off the tracks. And so Paul says to Timothy, watch your life. Watch your life. Because there will be a correlation between the teaching and the lifestyle. And that was true of the false teachers that Timothy was dealing with. If you look at, uh, at verse 2 of our chapter, you see that these false teachers could be characterized as insincere liars with seared consciences. 
That's not just a guy who's teaching something goofy. He's insincere and a liar and his conscience is seared. The remedy Paul sets for Timothy is to live an exemplary life. That is to live your life in such a way that it is consistent with your true biblical teachings. Now, there are some people who teach goofy things just because they teach goofy things. I'm not saying that, that all, all teachers of, of bad theology are uh, evil, evil liars with seared consciences. But there's very often a correlation between the two. There's a correlation between our lifestyle, the things that we do, and the things that we teach, the things that we believe. And so Timothy, or, uh, Paul also says to Timothy, secondly, watch your teaching. Right? Verse 1, false teaching is very prominent. And it's very destructive to one's faith. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, right? It's out there, and it's prominent, and it's an influence from the enemy. And it's a, it's a continual influence from the enemy. Teaching things that appeal to the flesh, that appeal to our, our earthly desires, our physical desires, maybe. False teaching usually comes with its own set of ethics and rules for living, right? Inevitably, they are based on some form of human wisdom other than the word of God. If you look at verse 3, they talk about these men who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So abstinence from these foods and abstinence from marriage, where does that come from? It doesn't come from here. It comes with an alternative set of ethics with this false teaching, and it's, and it's imposed upon you, right? But good doctrine doesn't just happen. If you look at verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. It takes work to have good doctrine. You don't wake up and just have good doctrine. You're not born with it. You're born with exactly the opposite. It takes work. It takes study. It takes teaching. It takes time. It takes commitment to develop good doctrine. You have to be trained in it. And very often, according to verse 7, false teachers will branch into speculative realms that the Bible doesn't address. Right? Look at verse 7 there. Having, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Myths, things you can't even, you can't confirm, you can't deny, you can't, it's just an idea. And what about this? And what about this idea? And what about this thing that has nothing to do with anything in Scripture? And so often we would rather talk about those things than talk about what's here. Now, there are two ditches you can fall into. Right there, there, are, there are two ditches. If, if the middle way is following biblical teaching, one ditch is to go beyond what Scripture says into speculation about things that we can't know for sure. Speculating out here, right? Scripture says this, and I'm going to jump way out here and talk about this thing, right? That's one ditch that we can fall into that takes us away from the Word of God. But there's another ditch. And the other ditch is that we may read something here, and it's hard to understand. And so we say, well, it must be mystery. It must just be mystery. And so we're, we're, in the end, not willing to chase down what Scripture really says about that topic. It's hard for us. Maybe we don't like it. Maybe we don't understand it. Maybe someone who taught it to us didn't understand it and confused it. We run across the thing in Scripture and we say, well, I know it says it, but it's got to be a mystery. I just can't understand it. That is something else that takes us away from studying God's Word. And so we want to remain in the middle where we want to study everything the Word says. We want to know what it teaches us. We want to chase down all the rabbits that it sends before us. But we don't want to go beyond what it teaches us into speculation into things over here. We want to stay tied into God's Word. We want to keep close watch on our teaching. 
And thirdly, how to save yourself and your hearers. Right? He says, keep a close watch, verse 16, on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Right? This doesn't mean that you accomplish salvation for the person that you're preaching to. That's, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about ensuring that the doctrine you preach is biblical, and if they believe the doctrine you preach, they will be saved, which is what was missing from Finney. So you're ensuring the salvation, your own salvation and the salvation of your hearers when you insist upon and you, you, you ensure that you are teaching biblical doctrine such that if people believe what you are teaching, they are led to Christ and led to salvation and not away into something else. Now, you'll see that this instruction is given to a pastor, right? So maybe this book is only for, you know, Woody and Chris and me and, and we're the only ones here who should be reading this. Well, of course, that's not the case. It's given for the entire church, and it's included in your Bible, not just mine. I didn't buy a special elder's Bible that had First Timothy in it, right? You have the same book in yours. It does apply to you, right? But it applies in a slightly different way. How, does, how do you ensure, how do you keep a close watch on your life and on the teaching when you're sitting out there and you're not standing up here? Well, I think how you keep a close watch on your life is exactly the same as it is for us. There's no, there's no difference there. But how do you keep a close watch on the teaching? How do you do that? I thought about that quite a bit this week as I, I thought of, I was putting myself into, into your position. I was, I was thinking about well, what, do we, what, do we, what do you do when you're the person in the, in the pew and you're hearing the preaching? Well, first of all, you need to know the Bible yourself so that you know if what is coming out is in line with Scripture or is not in line with Scripture. You have to know the Bible well enough yourself, not just your tradition, not just your own teaching that you've had from the pulpit in the past, not just the things that you believe because you've always believed them because you've always believed them, but what the Bible says so that when, it's, when, when something comes forth from the pulpit, you can say, yeah, that's what the Word teaches. It might be a stretch for you and it might be new for you, but you have to know the Word yourself so that you can know, no, there's something wrong with that. Or, no, that's exactly right. But you need to know that. And it's got to be different than just your tradition, what I've always been taught got to come from the word and so that's that's one way is that you have to know the word yourself you have to know doctrine yourself that takes study that takes work that takes commitment that takes you reading your bible that takes you critically listening to and and intensely listening to sermons from your pastors to learn about that stuff and to be in that regard secondly how do you ensure it by the ministries and the pastors you support by the ministries and the pastors that you support I don't just mean financially, though I certainly mean financially, but I mean in your presence. Uh, if, if you attended a church and the doctrine went awry, what do you do? You better say something. And, and, and you better be in conversation with leadership about this is not right, this is not right, and here's why, this is not right, and here's why. And after a time, if after a time, you get blown off, they're not going to make any change, you'll have to make a decision. Is this doctrinal difference such that I'm going to have to leave this church. You, you keep a close watch on your own teaching by the ministries and the pastors that you support. You've got to guard your minds and you've got to guard the gospel just like the pastors have to guard the gospel just like the ministers of God's word have to guard the gospel. Think of what David writes in Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. How blessed is the man who walks according... How blessed is the man who walks not according to the counsel of the wicked, nor the... I lost it. 
You all know it, right? Can someone quote it for me? No, I'll do it. How blessed is a man who walks not according to the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Right? So this isn't just pastors. This isn't just those who are doing the studying and the teaching. This is a Christian. Or again, what David says in Psalm 119, verses 103 to 105. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's for all of us. So study and know the Bible. Wherever you find yourself in a church, pray for and insist on good, biblical, sound teaching. We, we live in a very blessed time in history. If you think about what happened in the Reformation, this was the work of God, and it started because they received a Greek New Testament, and the world was lit on fire. I've got two or three Greek New Testaments in my, in my study, and the world's not on fire. Weird. We have all kinds of, we have access. That Greek New Testament that they received, which was a great, long work and arduous, and it was, it was a very difficult thing. You could download that on your smartphone before I'm finished preaching. Of course, you couldn't read it yet, but you'd have a Greek New Testament on your phone. So there is some work that goes into it. We, we want to be stewards, good stewards of the great wealth of resources that we have. There are Bible programs that you can't even imagine who can that can look up stuff that you can't even comprehend like it's amazing the questions that can be answered so easily with this stuff there's a wealth of knowledge you could we have access to an incredible amount of resources and we want to be good stewards of those resources that god has given us so let's pay close attention to our lives and let's pay close attention to our teaching let's not neglect the gift that we have these great resources which was given us by god and the generations of christians who've gone before us by persisting in sound doctrine and lives that bear the mark of the gospel we can ensure that the message that we preach to others is the scriptural gospel of salvation by the grace of god alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That's what the Reformers fought for. That's what the New Testament's about. And we want to cling to that, and we want to insist on it, and we want to preach that to other people. We want to know the gospel. We want to understand the gospel. We want to preach justification. And so we're committed to do that. And now you're better prepared also to be committed to do that that we can minister together as a congregation, focusing on and understanding the gospel and how it really works. So that, I hope, is the fruit of the last three months of our preaching on the Reformation. I hope it's not just a tour through history, though that's interesting. Not just a tour through theology, though that's also interesting for some of us. But it's a tour through the gospel, through looking at conversations from 500 years ago. I hope that it, that it yields fruit in our lives, in our congregation, in our own sharing of the gospel, in our own hearts, in our own ministries, that it would yield fruit, fruit of the gospel. That's what we're seeking. That's what we want to see happen. I'm going to pray now, and, and when I'm done praying, we're going to have some prayers who will, who will come forward and be ready to pray with you if you want to pray about something, maybe about this issue or something else, uh, but they will be available for you. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that I, sinner though I am, get to stand before you 
holy and forgiven because of what Christ has done. He has completed that work. And when you look at me, you see his righteousness. I am included in him. When you look at me, you see him. I rejoice in that because if it were, if it were partly up to me, I would, I would mess up that part. If it were up to me to have initiated, I would never have initiated. I was running the other way from you. If it were up to me to complete it, to fan it into flame, if it were up to me to get rid of my sin or to be worthy in some way, I wouldn't. None of us would. And so I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the fact that that you sent your son who lived that life that I have never lived and never would and no one has except for him, lived that life and died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin, not his, but mine, and for all those that he would buy. That his righteousness would be applied to me by faith. That I would have forgiveness of my sins by faith. And even that faith is by your grace alone. It's a gift. So, Father, I rejoice in the gospel, and I praise you, and I thank you, and I pray that you would take this gospel and that you would do your work in our hearts. I pray that you would call many to yourself, and even now that you would call uh, those in this room who, who don't, yet, uh, don't yet believe in you, that they would repent of their sins and they would believe in Christ, that they even now would turn to you, that they would find forgiveness of their sins, they would find peace with God. The only way peace with God is possible. So, Father, I pray that you would do that even now. Thank you for these men who've gone before us and thank you, thank you for faithful men and women today who fight for the gospel, who explain it clearly to us. And I pray that we would be a congregation that explains the gospel clearly, that understands the gospel clearly, and that you would do a great work in this community and in this world through the proclaimed gospel. Father, we love you and we trust you and we thank you for your word and we pray that we would be good stewards of it even in this day and age. I ask for your blessing on this group. May they go, go forth thinking about the gospel, pondering uh, what you have done on their behalf. Father, I pray that you would do this. We love you and we thank you and we will be grateful to you and we will be giving you thanks and praise for all eternity for this. We pray in Jesus' name.